There are some places in the world that are hotbeds for political and historical activity. These places may seem quiet on the outside, but secrets are lurking within. Since it's October, I'll use the metaphor of a haunted house. From the outside, it may not seem like much to the naked eye, but when you look closer and learn the history, the truth becomes unveiled. Bahrain is one of these hotbeds, a seemingly quiet but prosperous country that harbors a tumultuous past. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that dwells into different cultures and nations of the world throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I have a great show in store for you, so make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Healthline states research suggests that CBD shows promise in helping relieve pain and reduce inflammation, which could be useful to athletes participating in intense exercise. So if you're a serious athlete or a weekend warrior and you want high-quality CBD, reach out to thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. Not many people know where brain is, and partially that's because it's rather small. If you look at the Arabian Gulf, you'll see the bigger countries like Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, and then you get to a small archipelago above Qatar, and you've reached Bahrain. Bahrain is made up of 33 natural islands. However, extensive land reclamations have actually increased the size of Bahrain by about 40 square miles, or about 100 square kilometers, and increased the island count to about 84 with artificially constructed islands and inlets. Nonetheless, the entire country at its longest is only about 48 kilometers or and about 16 kilometers wide. The largest island, Brain Island, makes about 83% of the country's landmass and contains the country's capital, Munama, a modern-day architectural metropolis with tall, enticing skyscrapers, each one almost competing with the other to show superior design and elegance. The country is divided into 12 municipalities and five different governments. The vast majority of people live in the north, specifically in the capital, Manama, and adjacent towns right next to it. The south governorate is barely populated and less than 100,000 inhabitants stay there. The government wants to change that, though, and has been developing civil engineering projects to lure the population to spread through the outer secluded regions of the country. For example, constructing a water park in the middle of the desert and a massive $6 billion project called Duret al-Baran, the largest artificial island residence located right at the southernmost tip of the country. Seriously. Go look at the pictures of this project. It's really pretty wild. The most confusing part of Bron's geography would have to be Hawar Islands. That's part of the southern government. These islands are a group of islands that, although at the closest, are less than two kilometers from Qatar, where a source of lots of territorial disputes happen and do belong to Bron. Now, although Bahrain is an island, they do have access to Saudi Arabia by the King Fed Causeway, built in 1986. The bridge was a huge deal, 
in which prior to its construction, the only way people could get to Buran was by a 30-minute flight or a long ferry ride. Since then, the two countries have never been closer together, both literally and figuratively. Now, Buran is in the process of building another bridge between them and Qatar, currently referred to as the Friendship Bridge. After completion, it will be the world's longest fixed causeway. Now, looking at a satellite map, you would think that Buran doesn't really have much to offer other than sand. To be fair, it is pretty flat. It's dry desert with no forest. However, there is a tree of life standing in the south government all by its very own lonesome. It's the oldest and only major tree growing in the entire area, serving as a tourist destination. But what's really impressive about this tree is that it's been dated to be over 400 years old. As far as trees go, that's a long time. Buran is one of the 18 countries in the world that doesn't have any rivers, natural lakes, and it rarely rains there. Yes, about 92% of the country is desert. However, they do have a few of somewhat wetter and milder areas along the west coast. So, how do they get their water? Well, Buran is lucky because it's located on the Damar Aquifer, a region that soaks up water from the porous rocks and sands and distributes the water through underground a network of springs in multiple regions. That water is then extracted and purified at salinization plants. However, drought remains a very common problem for the country, and it's not uncommon for huge dust storms to engulf the entire region. Not unlike what we learned from our Angola episode, Buran has not put all of their hope into their oil industry. Over the past few decades, they have diversified their revenue to various categories, including banking, finance, machinery, and even tourism. In fact, according to the Economic Index of Freedom, Buran has the freest economy in the Middle East, especially after signing a free trade agreement with the U.S. in 2005. In 2006, the U.N. cited Buran as the fastest-growing economy in the Arab world, even passing the United Arab Emirates. Now, when it comes to the population, Buran is pretty strange because it's one of the few countries in which expatriates or exiled persons outnumber the nationals. With about 1.2 million people, Burani nationals only make up about 46% of the population and expats make up about 55. The most common nationalities of expats are Indians, Bengalis, uh, Pakistani, Filipino, and Indonesians. The funny thing about that, although, is that Arabic is the official language. Most of the population has to learn English because that's the universal language which nationalists and expats use, and of course even tourists, so that they can communicate. This makes Buran a very English-friendly country. Freedom of religion is allowed, however, if one were to apply for Burani citizenship, it would be much easier for a Muslim to be accepted as the country is still predominantly run by a Muslim parliament and a Sunni Muslim royal family. Did I forget to mention that Buran is a monarchy? In fact, the formal name Buran is the Kingdom of Buran currently under the rule of King Hamad bin Az al-Khalif. Man, that's a super long name. But he's a big, powerful, rich guy, so 
he can have four or five names. This monarchy is actually very new and it actually just started in 2002. Some people will say that it's a constitutional monarchy and some will say that it's an absolute monarchy. Ahmad bin Idah actually comes from a long line of people known as the Al-Khalifa family, which has, in some uncertain terms, had a dynasty over the country for three centuries. However, each head of state only gave himself the title Hakim, which means something along the lines of national caretaker, or Emir, which means chief. After his father died, Ahmad bin Idaha took over the role of the second Emir, with his father being the first emir, then later officially proclaiming himself as king of Baran. I guess he just skipped the job interview, right? So, I don't know. This was taken with some mixed reviews, of course, and some liked it and some didn't. Others that particularly didn't like it were the Shia Muslims, which make up the slight majority of the country's Muslim population. Complaints about the king and how he administered national affairs started to boil, and after an uprising in Egypt in the late 2000s, many Barani citizens jumped in and things got a little heated. The country saw some of the worst clashing and protesting that it's ever seen in years. It got so bad that eventually they had to tear down the famous Pearl Monument, which was a common meeting spot for the protesters during the rallies. Today, most of the drama settled but you still might get a rock thrown here and there. Baran made history in 2004 as they opened the first Formula One Grand Prix in the Middle East. Every year, they hold a race, an event that draws a huge international audience. Unlike its dry neighbors, Baran allows the consumption of alcohol. I'm sure many of Baran's visitors are citizens from the surrounding countries that just want to have a drink and not be really noticed. Speaking of its neighbors, let's talk about them. Because of the large number of expats in Baran, the country maintains good relationships with India, Pakistan, Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines. But when it comes to business, Baran knows how to play their cards. Turkey and the U.S. are among their top business partners, and they've even allowed the U.S.'s fifth fleet to station themselves in the Baran territory. Now, when it comes to the U.K., things are, well... Let's just say Baran was under British uh, status of protection for a period of time, and although the British did some great development projects such as building various schools and hospitals, roads, and things like that, the British did not treat their citizens as well as maybe they should have. Eventually, Baranians came t- became tired of the British uh, occupation and in 1971, the UK relinquished Braun, and to this day, despite the history, they still get along relatively well, unlike their relations with Iran. Let me put it this way, Iran really wants Braun, and like a clingy stalker who just won't take no for an answer, it's made things really awkward. In 2007, Hosen Motori, advisor to the Ayatollah, called for a stand to incorporate Baran as another providence of Iran. Barani were a little weirded by this, understandably, since it sounded a lot like what Saddam Hussein said about Kuwait back in the 90s. To make things worse, a lot of Baranians 
were torn between alliances. For one, the slight majority of Muslims were Shia, so theologically, they affirm Iran's view. However, a lot of Shias were actually Arab and not Persian, which caused a whole new set of drama. If it wasn't confusing, a lot of the Sunni Muslims, specifically the politicians and businessmen, actually have ties or even came from Iran. Iran is also busy hosting a plethora of visitors from Saudi Arabia who are known to travel to Iran in large groups to, spread, to spend their time partying and drinking in Manama. Now that we've taken a look at the inner and outer workings of Iran, let's take a turn and dig into their past. Barani history begins with Domen civilization back in 3000 BC. The Domen were noted for being a seafaring people, trading with many different entities around the ancient world connecting the ancient kingdoms of Mesopotamia to the Indus River Valley civilization. This made Domen very rich, and not just in currency. Many different cultures would mix and blend together with merchants that came from all over the ancient world trading in the Domen Baran at this time would often be described as a paradise having far more plant life and there's actually some historical debate if the richness found in this country was actually the inspiration for the Garden of Eden written about in the Bible and Abrahamic faiths. Towards the end of the 1000 BCs the Domen civilization found itself coming under, the foreign coming under foreign occupation, but still remained an important trading port for centuries to come. Baran, starting in the ancient classical era, would see rule from several different Persian dynasties. The Persians, who arrived, often gave a more Persian character to Baran and gave greater connections to the Persian world. Baran, under Persian rule, would begin to work in the pearl industry of all places. Around, around Baran, there's a large abundance of oysters. And these oysters produce some of the finest pearls in the world. Up until the 20th century, the pearl industry was the backbone of Barani economy. During the Middle Ages, Baran would become Islamic. It was one of the first areas to convert to Islam, with much of its population converting around 328 CE. The Middle Ages would see Baran become Arabized with the conversion to Islam and several different Muslim dynasties would rule Baran. One of the most interesting of these would be Karmatians. Now to fully explain who Karmatians are and all of the crazy ideological and religious motivations behind their rise to power would probably take hours. I'll try to be brief, and hopefully this won't be confusing. So the Karmatians were an Islami Shia Islamic group that opposed the Sunni rulers of the region. The Karmatians staged a revolt in 899, and this led them to taking much of the east half of Arabia, where they established this strange kind of pre-liberal republic which apparently had many segments of society not paying taxes in an economy dominated by African slave labor. The Karmatians would actually sack holy, the holy city of Mecca, taking an important Islamic relic known as the Black Stone in 931. Now, Karmatians at one point found 
a Persian man who they believed to be the Mahdi, or a mythical savior, who was supposed to end the world and lead all Muslims to paradise. But the guy they found was actually wasn't Muslim at all. He was Zoroastrian. Now, Zoroastrian, we're going to talk about that in a different episode. And to be frank with you, the reason that we haven't approached it yet is it's so dang hard to figure out what those guys ate. I don't know what I'm going to cook, but we'll get back to that. Zoroastrian people uh, represent a religion that was widely popular in Iran. He started preaching Zoroastrianism, insulting Allah and Muhammad and basically all Muslims in general. So after only 80 days of rule, he was promptly killed, damaging the legitimacy of the state. By 1076, the Karmatians were kicked out of Bran. Several other Islamic polities would rule the region, including the Uyunid dynasty, the Uesferdi, and Zarbred dynasties. The Zarbreds would be overthrown in 1521 by the Portuguese. It just seems like the Portuguese have their fingers in everything when we're talking about ancient history. Man, those sailors, they knew how to get around. So the Portuguese during this time uh, in their history, they were traveling all over the world in the age of discovery. They set out to see the pretty sights as well as gain economic control over many important trade routes throughout the world. Baran, being a fairly rich trade port and having a thriving economy, looked perfect to the Portuguese. They took the country after an invasion and ruled for around 80 years, mostly taking a hands-off approach to the governance due to the difficulties in transporting soldiers to the islands. After Portuguese rule, the Safids of Iran would take control of Baran. You may remember the Safids from our Azerbaijan episode, but here's a little refresher. The Safids were a Persian dynasty who managed to unite Iran and much of the Persian world and converted much of the population to Shiism. Baran had, since the days of Karmatians, a decent Shia population, but Safid rule would increase the predominance of Shiism with more people converting to it and Shia clerics holding much of the political power in Baran. The Safids, like the Portuguese, chose to indirectly rule the country hiring locals to carry out much of the administrative work. For the first 100 years of Safid rule, Baran would prosper. But after an invasion from Oman in 1717 and several years of back-and-forth conflict, much of Baran was depopulated. I think you should read depopulated into a bunch of people were killed. But let's not go too far down that right right now. This point in time would see a lot of unrest, and as different Arab tribes, local rulers, and even an occasional European would try to gain footholds in the region and gain access to the lucrative trade in the Gulf. In 1753, with unrest throughout the Persian realm, Baran came under the rule of Nasar al-Miyakuru. Nasar managed to take several cities in the Persian Gulf, and Baran while still remaining as a puppet king to the Persian Shahs, Nassar only managed to rule for several years, but Baran was invaded in 1783 by Qatar-based tribes known as the Bani Ubaha. 
One of the clans of this tribe, the Sunni Alfia, would manage to take control of the country, establishing a monarchy, calling themselves the first Hakmun of Baran. The Halif would bring Sunni to power in the country, although Sunni would remain the minority. But while the Alif were in control of Baran, they were still fraught with danger all around them. Rival tribes would fight for control of the region, and Persians, Omens, and Ottomans all had, had eyes on Baran, hoping to take over this series of islands. However, a new player entered the region, one which Barani hoped they could establish their independence. We've mentioned them before. Were you paying attention? That would be the British Empire. During the 19th century, the British Empire was growing throughout the world and the Middle East looked like just another great place to go and colonize. Starting in 1820, Baran would sign a series of treaties with, a, with Britain that recognized the caliphs as the rulers of Baran, but giving the British an increasing amount of control of Barani foreign policy. After a disastrous war between Baran and Qatar in 1868, Baran signed away its independence by making Baran a protectorate of the British Empire, although with the caliphs still being given a large degree of self-autonomy. Modernization would come to Baran in the early 20th century by building up the capital, Munoma'a, and someone out there might want to, to tell me if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I believe I am. They abolished slavery and set up schools in the country and started to drill for oil in the 30s while ominously bringing in foreign troops to police Baran's streets to quell any unrest. Oil would change the economy for the country as the pearl industry in Baran began to die off due to the rise in the Japanese pearl industry. Oil instead would be highly valued because, well, <laughs> it's oil, right? It makes just about all the modern machinery work. Speaking of which, a new type of modern machinery would enter the country, the battleship. The British would set up a naval base on the island to help secure their interest in the region. But despite all of these changes and ruling elites becoming fabulously wealthy, a growing discontent began to emerge in Baran. This wealth was concentrated in the upper crust of the society while pretty much everyone else gained nothing. Baran also experienced new competing ideologies that rocked much of the Arab world. Pan Arabism, or the idea that the Arabic word, world would unite to throw off the Western influence, became a predominant ideology among the, much of the intellectual class. Slowly, leftist groups began to emerge from the country. In 1965, an uprising broke out in much of the country, and with recently laid off petroleum workers, leftists, and students occupying several parts of the country before being put down by British colonial forces. The British eventually realized that they couldn't hold on to the Persian Gulf colonies. In 1971, they left, giving independence to Baran. However, in many ways, things would remain the same. The Caliph would remain in power and gave themselves the name Amir. Briefly, a limited democracy was introduced with an elected parliament, although it would quickly be dissolved in 1975. Government forces were also given legal authority to take pretty much anyone off the street and hold them for as long as they liked. Sunni Muslims, in general, 
would continue to dominate politically and economically, even Baran's role as a naval base would remain. While Britain left in 1971, the U.S. Navy arrived soon after, using it as a base to stage further military operations in the Persian Gulf. Baran remains a rich country, despite all of the inequality and tension present in it. It, it, it slowly began to process to move away from oil production and began turning to finance and banking. Ultimately, the country found itself living the high life and slowly people began to immigrate to the country looking for work. Though the country still had its own share of struggles leading up to today, it still remains one of the richest countries in the world with the fast-growing economy. But there's one more thing about Baran that they can really boast about having one of the largest and oldest cemeteries in the world. Interesting, huh? The Domen Burial Mounds, built between 2200 and 1750 BC, span over 21 archaeological sites in the western part of the island. Six of these sites are burial mound fields consisting of a few dozen to several thousand interned. In all, there are about 11,000 700 burial mounds. Archaeological evidence shows that the burial sites were originally not constructed as mounds but as cylindrical low towers. The royal mounds, characterized by their pronounced sizes and elaborate burial chambers, were constructed as two storied towers forming a ziggurat like shape. Two of the last Doman kings have been identified as Rimun and Yala El, in relation to the royal mounds 8 and 10. The Domen burial mounds illustrate globally unique characteristics not only with regards to their numbers, density, and scale, but also in the terms of construction, typology, and details such as their alcove-equipped burial chambers. As remains of settlements were scarce and buried under thick layers of soil, the Domen burial mounds are the most extensive and most apparent evidence of early Domen culture. At the time, the newly gained prosperity allowed the island's ancient inhabitants to develop an elaborate burial tradition applicable to the entire population. The excavated mounds provide a cross-section of various social groups in the early Domen society, attesting to thousands of of individuals of different age, gender, and social class. They also offer crucial evidence on the evolution of elites and ruling classes. The ancient inhabitants of Baranian understand the special geological configuration of the island and used less fertile land for the development of these extraordinary cemeteries. Because they are so old, there isn't much to indicate exactly how the burial rites were performed. But I can imagine that it was probably some delicious food involved, because otherwise, why would we be talking about it, right? And of course, that brings me to my favorite part of this show. That's the cooking. Balalit is a sweet and savory dish, which is the traditional breakfast in that area. Now, I'm telling you, this is not the traditional recipe. While simple, it is delicious either way. The traditional dish is contrasting flavors that brings together both sweet and savory elements. It's prepared with vermicelli 
that are sweetened with cardamom, saffron, and rose water, then topped with this thin egg omelet. Now look, it's great. But my version, it goes like this. To make four servings, you need 12 ounces of vermicelli, two tablespoons of unsalted butter, two large garlic cloves, minced, a half of a small white onion, diced, and four eggs, and of course salt and pepper to taste. In boiling water, cook the vermicelli for about three minutes and drain it and set it aside. In a frying pan, melt one tablespoon of butter over medium-high heat. Saute the garlic and onion until fragrant. Then add the vermicelli with the other tablespoon of butter and flash fry for about two minutes. Now divide that into four portions. Fry the egg sunny side up and place one egg on each portion. And then it's just time to eat. And let me tell you, it is worth eating. It's a great breakfast. So with that, I'm your host, Scott Parrish. And I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, which was co-written and researched by Nellie Grace, edited and produced by Producer Pete. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give, you a, I'd like to give some of you a special shout-out. Galleries.coins, surfer under slash silver 1977, and D.W. Harcrow. Your support drives the show. And we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear and find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, give us five-star rating, and don't forget to hit the subscription button to stay updated on the latest episodes. Until next time, stay lively.